0: Hi listeners, it's Delia D'Ambra. Summer is here, and I'm back with my hit podcast, Park Predators, to uncover mysteries from some of the world's most picturesque destinations you wouldn't expect. Because it turns out, sometimes the most beautiful places hide the darkest secrets. In this brand new season of Park Predators, I'm taking you beyond the beauty of these natural wonders like never before from the iconic Grand Canyon to the plains of Zambia, and so many places in between, all with chilling stories from the most unique places on Earth. So no matter where you're off to this summer season, new episodes of Park Predators are out every Tuesday all summer long. Listen to Park Predators now, wherever you listen to podcasts. A&E's crime and investigation event The Pursuit returns with a new unprecedented season of 60 Days In This time we're going in As a united front Together as one team With one unified mission We are determined to expose What's really going on We signed up for this Would you? 60 Days In, new episode Thursday at 9 Part of The Pursuit, a crime and investigation event Only on A&E September 6, 1984 started out as date night for 45-year-old Robert Marshall and his beautiful wife, 42-year-old Maria Marshall. The couple drove from their hometown of Toms River, New Jersey to Atlantic City. They had dinner. They gambled at Harris Casino. Rob, always the romantic, gave Maria a rose. This was a special time in their lives. Rob and Maria had become wealthy and successful and had three beautiful children. They had recently celebrated their 20th wedding anniversary. On that anniversary, Rob gave Maria 20 white roses, one for each year, he said, of their amazing marriage. But on that drive back on the dark road that night, shortly after midnight, something happened. Right after he passed through a toll booth on the Garden State Parkway, Rob would later tell police that he felt the back tire of his Cadillac go soft. Worried that he may have a flat, He pulled over to a picnic area to check it out. He told Maria to pop the trunk. And when he leaned down, he felt something hit him in the back of the head. When he regained consciousness, he found Maria lying across the front seat of the car, covered in blood. He ran out onto the road, and that's where a driver saw him at around 12.30 a.m., flagging down cars near the entrance to the Oyster Creek picnic area. Rob's head was cut open, and he had blood all over his face. Now, a lot of people, including me, may not have stopped for a man who was covered in blood in the middle of the night. But remember, back then, there were no cell phones. So the only way of getting help would have been to somehow reach a phone or to get someone else to make a call for you. And even with a head wound, Rob still looked like a well-dressed businessman. So the driver stopped, probably thinking that Rob had had some kind of accident. And then Rob told the people in the car that his wife had been shot and begged them to call the police. So they drove up the road to a nearby payphone and called 911. When police got back to the picnic area, they found Rob's car. And inside, they found Maria, face down, stretched out across the front seat. They checked her pulse and pronounced her dead on the scene. She had been shot twice in the back. Rob was walking around holding his head Later, he would go to the hospital and get five stitches. He told officers that the last thing that he remembered before being hit was another vehicle nearby, a dark-colored sedan. The next thing he knew, he said, he was hit. And when he woke up, he made his way to Maria in a daze. The single red rose he had given Maria earlier was on the floorboard. Now, Maria Marshall was the picture-perfect mom and wife. She was beautiful, with blonde hair, and athletic. She and Rob were regulars at the Tom's River Country Club, which was kind of the center of the local social scene. Rob was a successful insurance salesman. Maria was a stay-at-home mom to her three sons, 19-year-old Robbie, 18-year-old Christopher, a star swimmer in high school who was currently in his freshman year at Lehigh, and 13-year-old John. The boys would later describe their mom as their best friend and biggest supporter. Rob and Maria were a power couple, and seemed to epitomize 80s yuppie success. Some people at the club called them Cannon Barbie. They were pillars of their community and what everyone aspired to be. So the attack on a prominent local businessman and the murder of a mother of three shocked the town and everyone wanted to know who killed Maria Marshall. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Maria Marshall's murder is a case that I've been obsessed with since childhood, when I happened to catch the true crime TV movie Blind Faith, starring Robert Urich and Joanna Kearns on TV. Now this was back in the day, so a movie could go on all afternoon, and you couldn't fast forward through the commercials, you just had to wait through them. But it didn't matter, I was sucked in right away by the story of the sweet blonde wife and Robert Urich, who seemed to be kinda shady and sweating and pacing around like a panther. I watched all day. The heart of the story was those boys, the sweet and heartbroken brothers who were trying so hard to figure out what happened to their mother. The TV movie was based on an excellent book called Blind Faith by the journalist Joe McGinnis. I'm not sure why I was so fascinated with this movie. Maybe it was because Maria Marshall reminded me so much of my own mother, but I can't watch this movie without crying. The Marshalls had regular date nights along that route, and Joe McGinnis explained in his book that making those trips to Atlantic City dropping big money at the casinos and getting comped, were serious status symbols in Toms River, and Rob Marshall was very concerned with status. Joe McGinnis wrote, quote, They were, for the most part, middle-aged, restless, and bored. They were too far away from the cities, meaning New York and Philadelphia, to be hip, but not far enough away to be oblivious, end quote. Rob told police that he believed the motive had been robbery. He said that he thought that someone had followed him, maybe from the casino, after seeing him with Maria winning at the blackjack table. He kept telling police that his gambling winnings, over $2,000 in cash, were missing from his pants pockets. But Rob had secrets. For several months, friends and family members had noticed that his behavior was getting more bizarre. He had lost weight, seemed nervous, and was chugging his cocktail of choice, Cuba Libres, Roman and cokes with a twist of lime, with increasing regularity. Rob and Maria were opposites. Rob was described as a bit snobby and pretentious and short-tempered, while everyone who knew Maria basically said she was a sweetheart. But she was also someone who was private. She didn't really engage in the sort of tit-for-tat, keeping-up-with-the-Joneses social scene. Her entire life revolved around her husband and her boys. Investigators began forensic testing on Rob's 1981 Cadillac Eldorado and on the shell casings that they found in the front seat. Maria Marshall's autopsy showed two bullet wounds that went through her back and out through her chest and left breast. She had been shot at close range and a forty five caliber bullet was lodged in her forearm. She had been lying down when she was shot. Her left lung and an artery of her chest were lacerated. The cause of death was listed as massive hemorrhaging. The body was released to rob and he immediately had Maria cremated. She was laid to rest on September 10th, and family members started coming to the house. One of them was Rob's brother-in-law, Jean, and he told Jean that he had been having an affair with a woman named Saran Krishar, who was married, and a former vice principal at a local high school. In blind faith, Saran was renamed Felice Rosenberg, and her husband Stanley's alias was David Rosenberg. Rob said that he was in love with Saran, and that they planned to leave their spouses to be together. And he gave a lot of detail. He said they were soulmates and the sex was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. This was pretty shocking for Rob's close friend who was still reeling from the death of Maria. Jean and others told Rob straight up that they were disgusted by these revelations. But Rob told his sons that he had fallen in love with Saran and that he planned to move in with her. Then police found out something else. Rob had a life insurance policy on Maria for around $1.5 million. Now, Rob claimed that as an insurance salesman, it was a prudent move to have significant insurance himself, kind of a sales tool. For the next three months, the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office investigated Rob. And it was becoming increasingly obvious that he was not the man he appeared to be. Rob grew up in Queens, New York. He met Maria at a high school party. She was the beautiful blonde doctor's daughter who went to Catholic school. After graduation, Rob joined the Navy and went to college at Villanova on the ROTC program. Finally, Rob graduated and married Maria in 1963. Rob was classically handsome and Maria beautiful and blonde. At their wedding, Rob and Maria actually looked like the couple on the top of the wedding cake, a real life Ken and Barbie, as they would be nicknamed later. They moved around a bit, but eventually settled near Tom's River. He became a life insurance salesman and eventually became very successful. Soon they had all the trappings of upper-class suburban life—the Cadillac, the big house, the country club membership. And Rob seemed to adore Maria. He called her beautiful and talked about her almost like she was a show horse. He said she was proud of the way she dressed herself, always with expensive, pristine clothes, and the way she carried herself. Upon closer inspection, it seemed like Rob was happiest about the fact that Maria reflected well on him, which for Rob Marshall seemed to be the most important thing. Now, after Maria's death, Rob quickly hired a lawyer who advised him to cut off all contact with his girlfriend. But Rob kept acting like a lovesick teenager, while in a role reversal, his sons were the stoic men kind of holding the house together. He made cheesy mixtapes for his girlfriend with love songs and his rambling thoughts on them. In his book, Joe McGinnis described the girlfriend as basically part femme fatale, part flash dance. He said she did aerobics and threw a 40th birthday party where guests were expected to dress up as her. He wrote that she was pretty much the exact opposite of Maria, who was described by her sons as a beautiful, classy lady. After her wake, people gathered in the Marshal's home. And rumors started flying that Rob was acting more like someone hosting a cocktail party than a grieving husband at a wake. Police discovered that Rob Marshall was hiding something else. He had serious gambling debts. And other debts. Over $300,000 in all. And investigators were also going through his phone records. And looking into his connections to the Shreveport, Louisiana area and to a man named Ernie Granshaw. Rob gave people different stories about Ernie Granshaw. He first told one of his sons that he met him when he made a bet on a game and then ended up wiring him several thousand dollars to cover it. Rob told police that he'd hired Ernie Granshaw, who he said was a private investigator, to follow Maria. He claimed that there had been money missing from one of his accounts and that he suspected Maria of taking it. Now, the fact that he would pay a private investigator over $6,000 To get back an amount that was less than that was just not believable. Rob must have known that his story was falling apart. Feeling desperate, on September 27th, he checked into a Best Western. He booked room 16, where he had stayed before with his girlfriend. A detective who was tailing him checked into room 17. Then Rob recorded several tapes, love tapes for his girlfriend, where he said, quote, I'm in room 16, the best Western, where I was at my happiest and now where I'm the saddest. Tell her that I knew she was going to go back to Stanley. I can't go on alone. Tell her I love her, end quote. Then Rob said that in spite of his innocence, he knew that the evidence pointed to him and he was afraid that he might be convicted. He made more tapes, one for each of his sons. He then dumped a bunch of sleeping pills into a Coke and said that he was ending his life. A&E's crime and investigation event, The Pursuit, returns with a new unprecedented season of 60 Days In. This time, we're going in as a united front. Oh. Together as one team with one unified mission. We are determined to expose what's really going on. Get off We signed up for this. Would you? 60 Days In. New episode Thursday at 9. Part of The Pursuit, a crime and investigation event only on A&E. If this had not been such a horrific murder, it almost could have been a Fargo-style comedy. You have Rob Marshall acting like a teenager whose girlfriend dumped him on prom night. And you have the detectives following him at the motel, listening through the walls in the next room. And it was actually the detectives who ended up calling paramedics to help Rob. And all this time, Rob Marshall is such a narcissist that the only grief he feels is the fact that his girlfriend dumped him He never cried for his murdered wife, just for himself. The detectives who were tailing Rob got nervous. They called his room to check on him, and when he didn't answer, they called an ambulance. They got a passkey and found Rob on the bed, unconscious. Rob was taken to the hospital, and he was fine. It turned out that he hadn't chugged down the drink, just put his finger in the liquid and took a few sips. He said that he fell asleep before he could go through with suicide. The prosecution would later contend that Rob faked the whole thing just to get a version of his story out there through the tapes. And they were asking more and more questions about Rob's version of what happened on the night Maria died. An officer who saw him that night at the hospital, where he got five stitches in his head, later said, quote, he didn't look like a man whose wife had just been murdered. He looked like a man on his way to a yacht, end quote. Police asked why Rob would pull into Oyster Creek a dark, secluded area with a sign telling people not to enter after dark, to check a low tire when there were well-lit toll plazas and restaurants just a few miles up the road. Also, there was the tire itself. Rob had told police that he was driving when he felt it going soft. But officers noticed that the tire had been slashed. There's no way that he could have driven on it at all. And people kept coming forward, out of the woodwork. There was a private investigator who Maria had hired, unbeknownst to Rob, He described her as the nicest woman you would ever meet. He said that Maria told him about Rob's affair with Saran. He said he had followed the couple. They would park their station wagons in a superfood town grocery store parking lot and then talk or hook up. Then there was the lawyer who said he had been representing Maria Marshall for months. He had given Maria a bankruptcy petition and papers to file for divorce. But Maria kept going back and forth because she still loved Rob And despite him lying to her and cheating on her, she was still loyal to him. She even got a lease pendants, which crucially would have put a lien on their house and prevent Rob from using it as an asset. Maria had all the paperwork she needed by late July, but she never filed it. As soon as she realized that he may be in serious trouble, Saran kicked Rob to the curb and started talking to police. She said that Rob had told her that Maria spent too much money and was too needy. She said they planned to leave their spouses and live together. She also said that Rob told her about the insurance policy that he had on Maria and that he'd said it would take care of his debts. He said he wished she wasn't around and asked Saran if she knew anyone who would take care of it. She said, quote, I didn't think he was serious. I told him the idea was absurd and out of the question, end quote. Saran said she last saw Rob on the afternoon of the murder. She said she went out for dinner and then for ice cream with her family. Police were suspicious. Some of them believed there may be more to the story and that Saran knew more than she was admitting. First of all, there was this very detailed alibi that she had down to remembering the Caesar salad she ordered and the fact that she was familiar with the picnic area where Maria was shot. Local insurance agent Philip Gerard called police and dropped a bombshell. He told them that Rob had stopped into his office and said he wanted an additional $100,000 in life insurance on Maria. The company completed the medical exam on September 6th, and that policy went into effect that day, the day when Maria was murdered. The whole thing seemed almost too brazen. Rob was either a complete idiot or seriously desperate. The phone calls to Louisiana kept popping up. Maria pointed out phone numbers that Rob called throughout the summer, and police eventually realized that these were three people of interest. Rob had been calling these guys all summer, including several times the day before Maria was murdered. The calls ended the day after the murder. All summer, Rob had been playing blackjack at the casino a lot, and he was losing a lot of money. There were rumors that he would actually gone to loan sharks. First, the National Bank of Toms River loaned him $35,000. Then there was the equity loan on his house for $130,000 in total and other loans for tens of thousands of dollars. His credit cards were being denied. Maria was keeping closer tabs on him. His financial life was a house of cards and everything was about to get knocked over. If he got divorced, he risked losing his lifestyle and his status. But with Maria gone, Rob could get out of debt instantly. The guys Rob was talking to were not master criminals. They were kind of like a Louisiana version of the Three Stooges. There was Robert Cumber, a guy who worked at a hardware store in Louisiana. Rob met him at a party in New Jersey in May 1984. And later, he put Rob in touch with a man named Billy Wayne McKinnon, a former deputy sheriff in Caddo Parish, Louisiana, and sometime private investigator. Robert Cumber was basically the go-between. The final person of interest was Larry McKinnon, the man who Billy Wayne would identify as the shooter. Police found payments that had been sent to Ernie Grandshaw around $6,300 in total. Police suspected that Ernie Granshaw was not a real person. It was an alias that Billy Wayne sometimes used. Rob made that confession tape because he thought it would help him, but it ended up doing exactly the opposite because in Rob's tape, he said that he had been talking to a man named Ernie Granshaw, but he said that man's real first name was Billy Wayne something. When Billy Wayne heard that tape, he started talking. Billy Wayne told detectives that he agreed to kill Maria Marshall for $65,000. He told them that he had the impression that Rob Marshall had money. So he didn't really plan on killing Maria, but he figured that he may be able to string Marshall along as a cash cow for a while and get more money out of him. Rob told Billy Wayne that he didn't want a knife used because he didn't want to mar the beauty of Maria. And Billy Wayne told detectives that that's when he started to think that Rob was really crazy. He said that over the summer, he met with Rob and Rob wanted him to get the job done. Billy Wayne kept stalling and Rob was getting more and more annoyed, but he kept sending money. At some point, an acquaintance of Billy Wayne's named Larry Thompson, suspected bank robber and car mechanic, contacted Billy Wayne and told him that Rob had put a contract out for him for $75,000. Now, this was a crucial point in the case. Up until this point, Billy Wayne said he didn't want to kill Maria Marshall. And he may well have just disappeared with Rob's money and let the whole thing go. But when Larry told him this, that Rob had actually put a hit out on his own hitman, he seemed to realize that he was going to have to produce results. So Billy Wayne agreed to cut Larry in on the deal if Larry would commit the murder. At 10.07 a.m. on September 6th, Rob called Billy Wayne from a 7-Eleven outside the airport Motor Inn. During that call, according to Billy Wayne, Rob said that he planned to bring Maria to Harris that night. Then Rob met Billy Wayne. They rode around to a couple of sites in Rob's Cadillac, including the Oyster Creek picnic area. It was dark and secluded and seemed ideal. So Billy Wayne dropped Larry off at that picnic area. They waited for Rob to arrive, and then Larry shot Maria and hit Rob over the head. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? (whistles) That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. After that, Billy Wayne and Larry drove away. They were annoyed that Rob only had a few hundred dollars in his pocket not the 15,000 that he'd promised would be there. Then, Billy Wayne said they threw the gun off a bridge, went to a casino, and celebrated by hiring a couple of sex workers. They spent the night at the airport motel and were on the road to Shreveport the next day. Billy Wayne's story checked out. There were the phone records and the money transfers and the fact that Billy Wayne knew exactly where investigators could find Maria's missing purse, which they had thrown out the window along the Garden State Parkway. And there was one other interesting little detail. Apparently, Larry had said that he would need to shoot Rob, too, to make the robbery look believable. But Rob didn't agree to that. He didn't want to get hurt. He said that he would be okay with getting hit over the head. Not too hard, though. He was adamant that he did not want to be a vegetable. Finally, Rob, Billy Way McKinnon, Robert Cumber, and Larry Thompson were indicted in the murder of Maria Marshall. Robert Cumber would get a five-year sentence for his role in Maria's death. But when something went wrong with the plea agreement, this was later changed to a 30-year sentence. The trial of Rob and Larry Thompson began on January 27, 1986 in Mays Landing. Due to the pre-trial publicity in Ocean County, the venue had been changed. Rob's attorneys tried to have the love tapes he made for Saran thrown out of court. In the end, they lost, and the letter was admitted into evidence. In the movie Blind Faith, it was absolutely heartbreaking to watch those three boys show up in court, try to believe in their father, even in the face of all this overwhelming evidence. That's actually where the title of the book came from. The two older boys began to believe that their father might have killed their mother, but the youngest son stuck by his dad and continued to profess his innocence. The boys were torn. At one point, Chris expressed his hope that Rob would not be released on a technicality because then they would never know if he was really innocent. Now, the prosecution, which was led by Kevin Kelly, had to connect the financial dots in this case, and they also had to make the jury believe that this church-going pillar of the community, who publicly adored his wife, had actually killed her. Men had affairs, and they stole money, but to go so far as to arrange a murder-for-hire on your wife of 20 years seemed incredible. Saran took the stand, and she gave hints as to a motive. She said over the summer, Rob was becoming more and more desperate, especially desperate about his financial situation. She said that they had known each other for a long time, 15 or 16 years, and traveled in the same social circles. By the way, everyone in Tom's River was gossiping about this case. And there were reportedly a lot of nervous husbands waiting to see if Saran's alleged other affairs would be brought up. But the judge ruled that these would have to be left out. Then Rob took the stand. He made it all about Saran and once again painted himself as a victim. He said he'd simply fallen in love with another woman, and the star-crossed lovers planned to leave their spouses, but Maria's tragic murder just happened to have occurred first. Then he started talking about the night Maria died, their last ride together. He said that they had fun gambling, and then on the ride home, she got tired. She took her earrings out and put her head in his lap and tried to go to sleep. Then he felt like his right rear tire was getting low. So they pulled over into the picnic area. He got out, told Maria to pop the trunk, and then leaned down and noticed that the tire was bulging at the bottom, but not totally flat. Then he added a detail that no one had ever heard before. He said when he leaned down to check the squishy tire, he heard Maria yell, oh my God. The prosecutor nailed him on this detail and the fact that Rob wanted everyone to believe that it was a total coincidence that he had taken out so much life insurance on Maria, both on the day that Billy Wayne claimed that Rob had hired him, and again on the actual day she was killed. Then Rob said, quote, absolutely not. Keith Kelly kept bringing up Rob's assets and debts. He said that in July, Rob went to the bank and asked for a short-term loan, which they refused. At the time of Maria's death, Rob had a negative bank balance he was in debt for just over $334,000. Rob continued to stick to his story, which continued to sound more and more outlandish. Kelly kept asking him how the jury could believe it was a coincidence that Rob neglected to tell the police that he met a PI he hired to follow Maria at the casino and that he paid him $800 that day. Kelly also brought up the fact that he was sickened that Rob Marshall continued to profess love for Maria and to wear his wedding ring to court. Rob would also do other things that a lot of people suspected were for the benefit of the media, like holding up cardboard signs with the words, I love you, to his devastated sons. Finally, Kelly mentioned the wedding ring. He asked Rob if he still loved Maria. Rob said yes. Then Kelly said, quote, Then can you explain to me, sir, why her ashes are still in a brown cardboard box in a desk drawer at the funeral home? End quote. Kelly explained to the jury that Rob had never picked up Maria's ashes, and the judge allowed this line of questioning to go ahead, because Rob opened himself up to it by testifying about his great love for his wife. That may have been the defining moment of the trial, when the jury realized that they were dealing with a cold-blooded killer. Even the sentiments he expressed to Saran were genetic, like the back of a Danielle Steele novel, and when she broke up with him, he moved on quickly, He was the definition of narcissistic and superficial. He went to Florida with a girlfriend named Terry right after he stopped seeing Saran, the so-called love of his life, and he visited another woman named Molly there, who he promised to marry just months later, even though she was already married to someone else. Kelly got Rob to admit that he had given Terry money to buy a car. Billy Wayne told investigators, quote, this whole case is about money. He didn't do it for love, end quote. Right before the end of the trial, there was another twist. According to Blind Faith, Rob called his son Robbie and told him that he needed Robbie to basically lie and testify to the fact that he had been home on the day before the murder, at the time when calls were made from a phone booth to Billy Wayne. Robbie clearly was torn. He loved his father, but he took the stand and told the truth. Many people later commented that he would have made his mother proud. Keith Kelly summed up his description of Rob as. A coward, self-centered, greedy, desperate, materialistic, and he's a liar. The jury agreed. They convicted Rob of capital murder on March 5, 1986. He was sentenced to death. But Larry Thompson was acquitted. His wife Brenda and his sons gave him an alibi. All of them testified that they had seen him in Louisiana on or about the date of the shooting. According to Patch, New Jersey, Larry went back to Louisiana and kept getting into trouble with the law. Eventually, he was sentenced to 50 years for armored car robbery, the attempted murder of a Shreveport police officer, and other charges. In 2014, while incarcerated at Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, he admitted that he had been the one who pulled the trigger and killed Maria Marshall. He was 71 and knew that he couldn't be tried again due to double jeopardy. So Larry put an end to the 30-year mystery. Robert Marshall, on the other hand, has never admitted guilt in Maria's death. Rob began serving his sentence at Southwood State Prison in Bridgeton. He was re-sentenced to 30 years to life in 2006 after successfully overturning the death penalty sentence. This meant that he eventually became eligible for parole. His two older sons, Chris and Robbie, have worked hard to try to prevent that from happening. In 2006, Chris said, quote, I lost my closest friend, my biggest supporter, and my biggest fan. Whenever I go to a wedding and the mother of the bride dances with the groom, I leave the room, I can't take it," quote. They traveled to Trenton to ask the parole board not to release their father. They said that he had never confessed to their mother's murder, nor shown any remorse, according to the Asbury Park Press. Rob actually seemed to have a good chance of possibly getting parole, but he died in prison after suffering a debilitating stroke, he was 75. Chris Marshall spoke after his father passed away. He said, quote, For the past 30 years of my life, I have lived with the reality of having a parent who is a monster. But for the first 18 years of my life, he was my father, who supported his family and was always there for us when we needed him. The finality of this is what took me by surprise. The emotional range is from relief to sadness and mourning. This person who's your father is gone. At the same time, there is this vindictive happiness that he's gone now. He is no longer a drain on anyone end quote. He said once again that he wished his father had been able to accept responsibility for killing his mother. Maria was laid to rest at St Joseph RC Cemetery in Toms River. The inscription on her grave was the same one that she wrote for one of her sons on an appointment card: "Our greatest glory consists not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com so what do you think chuck do you approve want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com meet treadwell your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle get your best match in one minute or less with treadwell by discount tire let's get you taken care of